Hello and welcome to episode 26 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to turn back the clock a little to talk about two of Beethoven's more comfortable early works, Two Romances for Violin and Orchestra. This is not revolutionary Beethoven by any stretch of the imagination. This is not Beethoven, the challenger of tradition. This is Beethoven desiring to write interesting and attractive works that will easily please performers and audience members. Works that are certainly well and cleverly crafted, but also intended to be pleasing, even on first hearing. The instrumental romance is more associated with the French tradition than with the German, and is usually characterized by a gentle, serene melodic flow, avoiding for the most part just the sort of sometimes disruptive dramatic gestures for which Beethoven was becoming known. So one would hardly think of this genre as a particularly Beethoven-esque one, and yet here are two romances, lovely and fully idiomatic, perhaps influenced by Mozart's second movement romanza in his Concerto No. 20 in D minor, K-466. Was the first of Beethoven's romances originally intended to be the slow movement of an early violin concerto in C major written for his colleague Ignaz Schupanzig and later abandoned? Some scholars think that it's a possibility, although others are more dubious. Beethoven's brother, Kaspar, who worked for a while, although not really effectively, in the capacity of Beethoven's business manager, offered it to a publisher describing this and its companion piece merely as adagios with complete orchestral accompaniment and asking for them a relatively small fee, perhaps because the genre didn't have much of a track record in terms of sales. We'll look at the romance in F major first, although it's the second to be published in 1805 and given opus number 50, it was completed in 1798 and may have been begun much earlier, perhaps even when Beethoven was still residing in Bonn. It's a single-movement work, in cut time and marked Adagio Cantabile, and opens with a melody assigned naturally to the solo violin, which is supported by a modest orchestral accompaniment. It's a conventional enough melody in most respects, but nevertheless elegant and charming. It begins on the tonic note, which is decorated by an ornamental turn, and then begins to ascend with a dotted eighth sixteenth note figure, first skipping up a third to a not harmonic tone, which creates a gentle dissonance against the bass line, and then continuing up another step. From this high point, the phrase gradually works its way down, ending on the fifth scale degree, a fourth lower than it began. Here are the first two bars in a simplified example, just violin melody and bass line. The next two bars present a new idea, one with a more well-developed sense of direction, at least initially, striving upwards while alternating quarter notes with groups of sixteenths. Here we encounter chromatic movement for the first time, and with it a hint of sentimentality. But the ascending chromatic motion of the line is arrested in measure four, perhaps earlier than we expect it to be, and after a descending leap of a fourth, the melody ends close to where it began, once again on a dominant chord. Here's another simplified example, the third and fourth measures. Mm -hmm. 
The second four bars of the theme, which began on the dominant seventh chord, are somewhat more dramatic, including some distinctive new ideas, including a repeated trill motive and a sequentially repeated lower neighbor tone figure. But there are also common elements as well. The chromatic ascent, followed by a large descending leap that I just referred to in measure four, makes another appearance in measure seven but it all ends quietly enough on tonic in the eighth bar. Beginning in measure nine, the orchestra, now featuring the woodwinds as well, introduces its version of the melody, a little more rhythmically charged because of the pulsating 16th note accompaniment figures in second violin and viola. Here is an actual recording to that point. Right at the end of my example, you heard the beginning of a sharply contrasting new section introduced by the orchestra. It features stark-sounding dotted note figures, actually double dotted note figures, dropping a fifth, played initially in unisons and octaves, and quickly asserting D minor. While it does introduce some dramatic contrast, this new section isn't very long, only four bars in length and loses its austere quality fairly quickly. Before we know it, the solo violin has returned with a new, or somewhat new, thematic idea. Back in F major, it begins on the third of the scale this time, immediately features another ornamental turn, and again skips up a third. The underlying chord progression is also similar to that heard in the original eight-bar theme, although the orchestral accompaniment is a little busier here, with triadic arpeggios in the other strings moving beneath it. Some of the motives are new, but others feel quite familiar, as the phrase closes on the dominant after four bars. But the four bars that follow are quite different, especially harmonically, as they head again toward D minor, and the solo violin line becomes even more expansive, featuring an initial leap of almost two octaves before meandering back down the scale. We don't stay long in D minor, however, and we're heading towards C major as the soloist takes another soaring leap. This one plummets downward quickly, 
but then ascends again in a chromatic swirl of 32nd notes. This is followed by an undulating line of staccato 32nd notes, climaxing after another dramatic ascent in C major. Let's hear that much, starting with the soloist's second entrance. The orchestra then returns in force for another transition, complete with double-dotted notes once again, but applied now to a new motivic idea built on an upward-expanding triad. We don't plunge immediately into a new key this time, but we do arrive there after a few measures, and after Beethoven repeats his new dotted figure motive, the new key being F minor this time. The soloist doesn't drop out for any length of time on this occasion, and before you know it, it's back to its 16th note flights of fancy. Soon F minor evaporates before our ears, and we return to the first theme back in F major, played by the soloist with very placid orchestral accompaniment. And we begin to understand that this movement is operating in some respects very much like a rondo, with a recurring refrain theme separated by contrasting episodes, often with brief transitions from one section to the next. Then the orchestra again takes its turn with the theme, the flutes once again playing a major role. We then encounter a brief transition, almost identical to the first we heard, but the goal this time is a bit surprising. It's a new episode in F minor, and compared to what we've heard to this point, a surprisingly dramatic one. The thing is, it's not completely new, although initially we may hear it that way. 
The dramatic opening motive, plunging down the F minor triad, seems new enough, but much of the activity that follows resembles the soloist's earlier foray into D minor, especially the soaring leaps followed by sweeping scale lines, some of them played staccato. And like that earlier section, this one modulates, although this time it's F minor to D flat major, and Beethoven even quotes a bit of the opening phrase in that new key. In fact, the passage that follows the soloist's quote is really one of the most effective in the whole work, as flutes, oboes, and bassoons take newly active roles in the texture, and the key seems to wander intriguingly just for a couple of bars until we lock in again to F major. As Beethoven settles in on the dominant chord in F major, things actually get a bit tedious as we hear nothing but C major arpeggios for five-plus measures in a row from soloist and orchestra. But the soloist soon takes off on a more interesting flight to gradually bring us back home to F major, and yet another repeat of the refrain theme. There is a bit of a coda, and it begins in a somewhat predictable manner, with the same rather disruptive, double-dotted rhythmic motive we've heard before, again plunging us very briefly into D minor, before restoring us to F major just two measures later. Although the dotted rhythm motive itself continues to make an appearance for a couple of additional measures, even after the soloist once again takes control. The soloist's passage work is a little different for this final section. It begins with an ascending chromatic scale, played staccato, 
before lapsing into somewhat repetitive, repeated motives. There is a final reference to a simplified version of the opening bars of the refrain theme, and then some final passage work taking us to the top of the soloist range before the orchestra reiterates the tonic chords softly to conclude the piece. Here's an excerpt beginning near the end of the last complete version of the refrain theme by the soloist leading into the coda. I described this earlier as a rondo, but it's less straightforward, formally speaking, than most we've encountered. The rondo theme itself is clear enough, as is the transition to the first episode, which appears to plunge us rather unceremoniously into D minor. But we aren't there very long at all before we return to the original tonic of F major where we hear something that sounds less like a typical contrasting episode and more like a variant of the original refrain theme. So the key is wrong. We'd probably expect the first episode to be in the key of the dominant. And this is far from the sort of contrasting episode that we'd also expect to encounter. But it turns out that if we just wait a bit, things tend to get clearer or at least more like we expect them to be. Because we don't stay in F major, we move after four bars back to D minor. And when we move to D minor, we do hear a contrasting idea. Although, as I described it earlier, it's really not a distinctive theme per se. It's more a combination of bold leaps and chromatically inflected scale passages. But this new passage soon makes its way to C major, and that is the key we would expect for the first episode. Then, as you'll recall, we encounter another dotted rhythm transition, 
one of the most predictable things about this piece, which takes us to F major and a return of the refrain. From that point on, the form is a little more conventional. The next episode is a dramatic one in F minor, which, as you may recall, visited D-flat major briefly to quote the opening bars of the refrain theme. But the transition takes us back to F major, and the refrain comes back as expected again. By the way, I'm not suggesting that young Beethoven is being incompetent here, because his use of the roundo form is a little less predictable than in some earlier works. Formal clarity is by no means the ultimate determiner of musical value. You can compose a movement that follows a conventional form in a very precise way, and it can be a deadly dull piece. And I don't want to overstate the degree to which Beethoven is playing fast and loose with the typical rondo form here. His departures from our expectations are far from earth-shattering. Rather, I think it's safe to say that he is still finding his way and experimenting, and a romance such as this one provides the perfect vehicle for that sort of experimentation. We'll move on now to the G major romance, composed between 1800 and 1802 and published a year later. Of course, this is a period for Beethoven in which we've seen great strides in the originality and complexity of his style. But few would suggest that these original or innovative elements are exhibited consistently across his entire compositional output in this period, or in fact any period. In our last episode, I made mention of some of the extraordinary qualities demonstrated by the first movement of the Kreutzer Sonata for Violin and Piano, Opus 47. But even Beethoven's most zealous admirers would be hard-pressed to make similar claims for the final two movements of that work. Interesting details, to be sure, but nothing particularly original or innovative. So what can we expect from this second romance for violin in orchestra, composed four years after the first? If we look again for striking examples of originality or innovative techniques in melody, harmony, rhythm, texture, and form, we're probably going to be disappointed. But if we're satisfied to experience a work brimming with sweetly lyrical melody and maybe a touch of authentic passion here and there, we're probably going to be pleased. The opening theme is presented in double stops by the solo violin alone. The first four-measure phrase, introduced by two quarter-note pickup notes and starting on the tonic note, stays mostly within the range of a fifth, reaching its high point quickly before taking a more circuitous journey back to the starting note. While the primary melodic idea is presented in the top voice, the bottom voice does more than merely fill in the harmonies beneath it, but actually has a linear identity of its own. And while the implied harmonies are not exceptional, he makes use of a secondary dominant chord to tilt us briefly in the direction of E minor before returning home to G with a conventional cadence. Here are the first eight bars of the movement, showing the first half of the main theme, the first four bars played by the soloist, and then repeated in a slightly different version by the whole orchestra, with, by the way, an interesting texture. Their orchestral strings played pizzicato and the winds delivering a more lyrical, sustained version of the theme, all of it finishing on the dominant chord. 
The violin soloist then delivers the second part of the theme, also four bars in length, starting on the dominant again in double stops. This part of the theme has a very different shape, beginning with a sweeping ascending triad on the upbeat, followed by a partially chromatic descent down the scale. The last part of the theme combines some chromatic movement with one very expressive ascending leap. After the solo violin introduces this new idea, the orchestra takes it up, again in a slightly altered version, the whole thing ending on the tonic chord. At that point, we hear a much more robust, repeated cadential tag to bring the opening refrain to a close. Next, encounter a contrasting thematic idea, which we'll refer to as an episode, since this work, like the first, demonstrates some rondo like characteristics. There's no real transition here. After the refrain theme concludes with its final cadence, the soloist comes in, again halfway through the measure, with a descending flow of sixteenth notes. This episode begins in G major but concludes in D major eight bars later. It is by no means a starkly contrasting theme, although it's much more florid and its passing chromaticism gives it a more sensuous aura. The harmony is at first rather static, with tonic and dominant chords alternating over a tonic pedal in cellos and double basses. After three and a half measures, it introduces a more distinctive descending motive featuring double dotted eighths followed by 32nd notes. At this point, the pedal G disappears, and we begin moving to D major, as the episode ends with a series of florid descending phrases concluding on D.
At that point, the first violins introduce a new two-measure staccato motive, which is immediately taken up by the woodwinds, who had been silent the entire episode to that point. It's really no more than a repeated cadential figure, which is tossed back and forth for four bars. Meanwhile, the solo violin has re-entered with another highly florid cascade of sixteenth notes, as the repeated staccato motive gives way to a four-bar transition, which will deliver us back to G major and a restatement of the refrain theme by the solo violin. Here is the repeated cadential passage, the brief transition, and the beginning of the soloist's restatement of the refrain theme, in double stops again, this time with a more well-developed countermelody in the lower voice. The orchestra's repetition of the first four bars is a little different this time. The texture becomes more complex, especially the contributions of oboes and bassoons. The earlier string pizzicati are abandoned, and the lower strings in particular are much more active. Then, when the soloist re-enters with the second part of the theme, again employing double stops, the lower voice is also much more active. When the orchestra chimes in with its variant of the second part of the theme, there is a new lead-in motive. The level of textural activity in general is once again increased, and we have new crescendos and fluctuations in dynamics. Here is the orchestra's new version of the first part of the theme, the soloist's new version of the second part of the theme, and the orchestra's new response to that second part all of it heading toward a repeat of the more robust, repeated cadential tag motive you heard earlier.
The first episode we encountered could not really be described as a strongly contrasting one, but the second fits that description very nicely. First of all, we're in a new key, E minor. That by itself is hardly remarkable, since it's the relative minor of G major, and therefore closely related. But Beethoven plunges into the new key with very little modulatory preparation, and that might catch us off guard just a little. And the theme itself, with its almost constant staccato markings, sforzando accents marking the third beat of several measures, and hints of gypsy-like ardor, could hardly be more contrasting with the elegant refrain theme. Now, the theme itself is a fairly conventional one in some respects. Its frequent use of dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythms were to some extent prepared by similar dotted rhythms heard earlier in the repeated cadential pattern at the end of the refrain sections. Its initial ascending arpeggiation of an E minor triad can hardly be considered a unique gesture, although here, followed by a series of plummeting sixteenth notes leading to a trill, the effect is really quite dramatic, even passionate and yet somehow coquettish at the same time. After eight bars, the second four, really just a busier variant of the first four, Beethoven introduces a brief contrasting motive which tilts us toward A minor very briefly, but the original theme soon returns, sounding even more beguiling the second time around. As the theme unfolds, it loses some of its most distinctive elements, passing to a flow of staccato sixteenth notes which race up and down the E minor and chromatic scales, but its intensity level is generally maintained, even as it morphs from the key of E minor toward G major by way of its dominant chord. Beethoven basically sidesteps the issue of creating a transition between the quite distinctive second episode and the return of the refrain theme for the final time by simply assigning to the soloist an ascending chromatic scale which leads up to G, where the soloist simply begins the refrain theme, an octave higher than the original. There are no multiple stops involved this time, 
The first violins compensate for this by providing a quite active accompaniment pattern in 16th notes, with the lower strings and later horns filling in the harmonic gaps. All of this allows the soloist to take off on another flight of fancy for measures 3 and 4 of the theme. This time around, the soloist goes directly to the second part of the theme, the second four bars, beginning with that chromatic descent, with no interrupting interpolation from the full orchestra, and once again departs from the theme after a couple of measures for a florid interjection based on the original theme. For the final measures of the piece, Beethoven brings back in the orchestra the dotted rhythm cadential tag idea we've heard twice before, with a bit of a chromatic twist this time, while the soloist indulges itself with sustained trills and flowing 32nd note scale-wise flourishes, until everyone gets together for a final fortissimo three-fold repetition of the tonic G major chord, in case anyone was wondering if the piece was actually over. It would be convenient to look at this second romance for violin and orchestra, note its later date, and conclude that it represented a major step forward in terms of concept or execution. In truth, I'm not sure that it does, except in some rather limited ways. Although both works resemble in form short rondos with an A-B-A-C-A pattern, the second romance is a little shorter than the first in performance, and you could argue, I think, that it is by nature less sprawling. The transitional material for the earlier romance seemed a little uninspired and even a little heavy-handed, given the role it's meant to play, and the comparable section in the second romance showed perhaps a little more finesse. Neither of the romances exhibits a strongly contrasting melodic idea in the first episode. You could argue that the lack of contrast is a strength since it allows for more stylistic cohesion. 
Still, we tend to appreciate reasonably sharp melodic contrast in rondo-form movements, if for no other reason than it makes the return of the original refrain fresher and more vibrant. Both romances do employ more strongly contrasting second episodes, but here there's really no comparison. The F minor section in the first romance exhibited a colorful little modulation to D-flat major, where it briefly referenced the opening refrain melody, but the second episode in the second romance in E minor, with its gypsy flair, provided a much more complete and colorful sense of contrast with the refrain theme. Nevertheless, I think it's safe to say that both of the romances for violin and orchestra accomplished Beethoven's goal to provide an attractive vehicle for a violin soloist and orchestra that put the emphasis on the lyrical qualities of the solo instrument first and foremost. The fact that both works remain popular to this day, with dozens of recorded performances of both still readily available, attests to the timelessness of that accomplishment. For our next episode, we're going to look at some of Beethoven's early leader, a possibly underappreciated category within his early works. <laughs> 